Hello, welcome to Making Creativity Pay, the podcast where we talk to people in creative industries about how they promote and market their work. I'm Dan Barnett, and on this episode, I will be speaking to journalist Fergus Morgan. This is the first of two episodes with Fergus. This one deals with Fergus's experiences as a freelance theatre correspondent, working with organisations such as The Scotsman and The Stage, with the second episode focusing on Fergus's thoughts and experiences in relation to the Edinburgh Fringe. I started out by asking Fergus to give us a quick introduction about himself and his work. My name's Fergus Morgan. I am a journalist, a freelance journalist. I write about theatre mostly. I have various ongoing gigs. I'm the Stages Scotland correspondent. That's where I do most of my work. But I have also written for the Financial Times, the Evening Standard, the Scotsman, various other Time Out, various other publications. I do other bits and bobs like recording podcasts and the odd bit of radio stuff in and around that as well. During the Fringe, um, the Edinburgh Fringe is probably my biggest, busiest time of year, which has just finished. Currently feeling very relaxed and relieved that it's over. I'm based in Edinburgh as well. Maybe I should say that. So with something like working on the stage, is, is that a case that, you know, that's, that's your choice or, you know, that's kind of the, the only way it works these days in, in journalism in that sector? It's kind of become a choice by default I suppose in that when I first started writing about theatre about 10 years ago there just were not that many opportunities for paid salaried on staff positions in this kind of thing and I didn't really want to go down or at least it didn't really occur to me to go down a kind of journalism masters entry-level staff writer job I wanted to write about theatre and this was the only way of doing it was by doing freelance work and as that kind of portfolio has grown and grown and my lifestyle has evolved around that I now can't think of a a way I'd like to do it better I don't think I'd like to be on staff these days it's funny often or traditionally it's the other way around right you're on staff for a decade or so or a few years and then you you leave an organization to go freelance when you've got a big enough name for yourself but these days it's almost working the other way around where you have to start freelance because there aren't any on-staff positions and if you're good enough, you'll get brought on stuff. But I don't think I'm that interested in doing that these days. So with something like The Fringe, obviously there's stuff to write about you know, several times a day. Will the stage kind of say to you, we need three pieces on X, Y and Z by 6pm tomorrow? Or is it a bit more that you will pitch various things and they'll say, yes, we like that and no, we don't want that? So with different publications I write for, it works differently. With the stage, I have kind of ongoing responsibilities. Under that, I'm still freelance, but I have ongoing responsibilities wearing my Scotland correspondent hat, which are basically any new stories around Scottish theatre or the Edinburgh Fringe, many reviews around Scottish theatre. And at the Edinburgh Fringe, they pay a day rate for for covering shows, three or four shows a day for £150, which isn't amazing, but it isn't, isn't terrible. And other stuff around that, I also I also do other regular gigs, like review roundups, and I have a regular interview slot weekly with the stage as well. So all that kind of stuff is on, a, on an ongoing conveyor belt. Then every now and again around that, I will pitch other content like opinion pieces or long reads or big interviews with people that I'm particularly keen on talking to. And so within theatre, obviously... There's so much around August. I mean, what's it like, especially in Scotland, the rest of the year? Is there a thriving scene? I get by. It's definitely the case that August is my busiest and most lucrative month of the year. And it's certainly the case that, well, with any freelancer, my 
income goes up and down month to month like that. In August, it shoots up, but there are other months of the year where it shoots right down and I earn, I earn a fifth less than what I earn in August. So it's a, it's a kind of balancing act in August. The amount I earn in August kind of helps smooth out the rest of the year, if that makes sense. That's not to say that it's yeah. not busy the rest of the year. There are times when it's really busy, but there are also kind of fallow periods. The difficulty I always find when you're a freelancer is, is navigating those fallow periods and learning to say no to stuff when you're busy with the knowledge that the work will come, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. There's always, in, your, in the back of your mind, you know, you know, you can be pretty confident the work will come, but there's always the worry that one day it won't. I have, I'm still struggling with that. And I wonder whether you ever get to a point, because I interview famous actors who, who say exactly the same thing. And I, wor- I worry that you never actually get to a point where you're not worried where the next kind of paycheck is coming from. But hopefully it's something I'm getting better at. That said, I cannot think of a, think of a single thing that I've said no to <laughs> in the last year. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, one of the earliest episodes we did of this is probably a couple of years ago now was with someone who set up a magazine for freelancers you know, and trying to build a community because, yes, I mean, it's quite a, it can be quite a lonely thing that, you know, you're, you're just kind of doing that thing. You know, that's obviously the, the biggest thing you might miss from a regular job is being part of a team. You know, you'll, you'll have associates, but you're not necessarily within a team. I mean, how have you found that? And is there a kind of a network or support group or whatever amongst, you know, people in similar kind of position as you? There are a few networks I'm part of. I am fairly close to the, the stages on staff team because I email most of them every day anyway. So I am kind of part of that little unit. I'm also a member of the NUJ, the National Union of Journalists, and the Edinburgh Freelance branch of the NUJ is probably one of the busiest in the country. The the, the scene of Scottish theatre writers is fairly well connected as well because we run award schemes. We run the Critics Awards for Theatre in Scotland as well. So I am in constant conversation with with a few people a few different groups of people and i see people at press nights fairly regularly as well that said most of the time it is just me on my laptop in a cafe but that that kind of suits me as well like i i enjoy that freedom to work where i want and when i want and not be beholden to to an organization or to a network do you know you work for publications but you are also a publication yourself yeah, I should have mentioned that at the beginning when I did my introduction, actually, is that I also publish a Substack newsletter, an online newsletter via the platform Substack called The Crush Bar, which is about theatre and which, yeah, I have modestly tried to monetize as well at the same time. So I work for publications and I suppose I am a bit of a publication as well. <laughs> and how have you found you've been doing it for a couple of years now on, on Substack? I started, first issue I sent out was on January the 1st, 2021. So two and a half years now, yeah. which seems mad. I've done just over a hundred issues, probably something like a hundred and fifteen now. And yeah, gradually I've been able to monetize it. I have about two thousand free subscribers, and then I have about only about twenty or so, only about one percent of that as in paid supporters. They don't get any extra content because I want to keep everything in front of a paywall. I don't want to put anything yeah. behind a paywall because I'm writing about theatre and people that work in theatre have no money for that kind of thing. And also part of the point of the newsletter is that it's platforming artists and you're not really platforming anyone if you're putting them behind a paywall. I want as many yeah. people to read about the people I'm writing about as possible. So I get a little bit of monetization, probably just about a £1,000 a year through paid supporters. 
the rest of the monetization of it comes from uh, promotional slots that I sell throughout the year, mostly that uh, coalesces around fringe festivals where there's a high concentration of theatre industry professionals and theatre shows happening all at the same time. So Vault Festival, although that's not going to happen next year, apparently it might happen, but not in the same format. So I'm not sure how I'm going to fill that gap and Brighton Fringe and most importantly, the Edinburgh Fringe. It's a case of making hay while the sun shines in the Edinburgh Fringes that I do worry that I kind of inundate my subscribers with content, but that's partly because there is a lot of content to write about during the Edinburgh Fringe, but partly because that's my window of opportunity to monetize the festival because people want to take advantage of the audience that I've built through the newsletter to market their show. And in terms of kind of how you decide what's for the newsletter and what's for stage or any of the other publications is it the case that you know you will produce something and if it's sellable or if it's of interest to those parties then it goes there i don't i don't mean that like, you're left with the dregs in the newsletter i don't mean like that but you know is there a is there a kind of case that you know you're right for those or the paid audiences first which would make sense it's an interesting one that because it is a question i am increasingly having to deal with i certainly think i can be more expressive and more opinionated in the newsletter than I can be in publications. I can be less formal in my style of writing as well, but there is a degree of overlap. Part of the issue with the publication is that there are other people writing for the stage about theatre. There's some incredible writers also writing about theatre who want to write about the same things as me, so I don't often get the opportunity. Actually, that's not true. I often get the opportunity, but there are times that other people are reviewing shows that I want to review for the stage, and then I can either write about them in my newsletter or write about them for another publication. So there is a kind of there is a kind of crossover there. There's also a degree of kind of recycling that goes on in the newsletter, where perhaps I've touched on a topic in the stage but don't have room enough to expand on it in as much detail as I'd like to. Then I can do that in the newsletter. I can also go and see a show for the stage, write a review for the stage, but also give it a brief shout out in my newsletter. It's not a binary one way or the other. That said, I never kind of plagiarise myself in the newsletter. I'm always producing new content, but often it is around the same topics. But those are the topics that, and the shows that the theatre industry is talking about. And so one of the kind of things you know you talked about, you, you have a monetized part of the newsletter, but you don't have a paywall, but then something like the stage or the Scotsman will have paywalls. Again, you know, that's that's how they manage to, to survive. But I thought it was interesting that the, the Scotsman had a kind of one pound trial effectively for August. So if it's the kind of thing, you know, you're just interested in the fringe, you pay a pound, you might stay on because you like it, you might forget. You know, there's always that with the subscriptions and, you know, other people leave. Whereas the stage, it was, you know, you get three articles in a month, so obviously you're going to burn that pretty quick. I mean, what do you think about the two models and do you think there's something for, you know, someone like the stage where I'd say probably someone like me personally, I'm not necessarily interested enough to want to access to a, a trade site for the whole year but for august i very much am to be honest i don't know because i don't work on that side of things for a big publication enough i think the scotsman's one pound for all fringe coverage is a is an incredible offer and it would be interesting if the stage did something similarly how much people took it up of course when it comes to publications big publications it's all about maintaining subscribers as well maintaining yeah. maintaining customers so there'd have to be a mechanism that led people on from that introductory offer to a regular subscription that would then probably go up in price in a few months' time. You have to remember as well that the Scotsman is but a national world, right? And that's a big organisation that has, has people working on this kind of thing mm. year round and, and, and analysing it and doing all sorts of things with it. The stage is still privately owned and is a very small organisation comparatively. It's the stage 
same people own the stage or own the bookseller and that's it. And they don't have anywhere as much resources to dedicate to working out this kind of thing. So they probably have to keep things fairly simple, relatively simple compared to a kind of national newspaper like the Scotsman. That said, I, I am talking out of my ass a bit here. I don't <laughs> know that much about this side of this side of making a newsletter newspaper work. Yeah, from my point of view, that there seems to be a lot of interesting stuff going on, on at the stage, but it's not, you know, perfectly honest, interesting enough to take out a, a monthly subscription because you know, I don't think that was particularly low price but yeah you know, because you know that's that's my that's my loss not theirs you know you'd have to you'd have to talk to someone at the stage about it I'm sure they'll have uh, myriad interesting insights into this kind of thing it is an industry paper I suppose and to an extent it is an industry paper kind of for most of the year and then suddenly during the Edinburgh fringe there's a whole host of other people want to read it because they're up in Edinburgh for the month of August or something like that, who wouldn't naturally be interested in a lot of the content the stage puts out the rest of the year. There probably is something to explore around that, I would, I would say. Like the Scotsman. I mean, most people, a lot of people subscribe to the Scotsman, I imagine, who don't live in Scotland, but they would take up that offer because they're coming to the Edinburgh Fringe and it's a good offer and they want the content that the Scotsman produces around the Edinburgh Fringe. They're less interested in all the articles about Edinburgh City Council or something like that. So kind of where do you see journalism going over the next few years? It seems that there's been a bit of a backlash or a bit of a rollback from the whole kind of clickbait thing. I mean, I, I guess within theatre journalism, it's probably not as extreme. You know, someone's not saying to you, you need to write 10 articles a day on people's favourite type of peanut butter or whatever else. You know, you're not having to churn out those kind of things and make people angry for clicks. But it, is there still a kind of demand for new content on a consistent basis rather than necessarily like you say kind of long reads and more detailed stuff i'm very lucky as a journalist i think and i've never really had to work in one of those environments where they have leaderboards and um, the stats for each article they've published is kind of displayed for everyone to see and there are bonuses if you get to the top of the charts or something like that so i don't really have anything to compare it with all i know is that the stage has never really told me to that's never been a factor in my writing for the stage is all right how many clicks is this going to get obviously i want to write about a topic that's relevant and about artists that are relevant and shows that a lot of people want to hear about but certainly in the relationship i have with the stage the kind of freelancer to publication relationship freelancer to editor that's never really been a massive part of the conversation at all which i feel very lucky about because i think the stage is a terrific organization it's very well established it's very clear on what its duty is to the industry that it serves and it is less interested in that kind of thing from my perspective anyway that's how it's always felt the first part of your question in terms of where journalism is going i can only speak really on this from my perspective to make things work as a journalist now there are fewer and fewer staff jobs and you do have to build a kind of portfolio of gigs generally centered i suppose i think the way i've made it work is pretty common i do a lot of my work through one publication I do bits and bobs of work for other publications and I am starting to build something, a platform of my own, a kind of newsletter subscription-based platform of my own under my own name that also brings in a little bit of income. I think that is generally the way it's headed if you're a freelance journalist. To be honest, I, it makes me uncomfortable because I don't really like forefronting my name in that way. Like this is a Fergus Morgan newsletter. I feel uncomfortable because it feels incredibly egotistical to kind of make myself the publication. But ultimately, I think I have fairly little choice because, because yeah, that's just the way things seem to be headed. Yeah, I, I think I mean, that's the... you only have to look at kind of big 
new, new big writers from newsletters who from newspapers who go and set up their own newsletters based on their own name. I'm not. There's a kind of uber democratization of journalism that happens with newsletters and online content, and even on Twitter now. Sorry, X. You can kind of provide content that people subscribe for as well. I think I think there's like a mechanism for that now. Yes. Um, and I worry about all of this because there's so little quality control. There's so little oversight. Um, but yeah, I, I don't really see what choice I have. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. You know, we were talking to, to Stuart Goldsmith way back, and he he kind of used the phrase which he he kind of hates, and I kind of understand why he's a solopreneur, where you know you are doing all these different things. You know, so the whole kind of portfolio careers and all, all, all those kind of buzzwords that come around, where you know you are trying to do half a dozen different things, and yeah, you know, like your your email, you, it probably feels a bit awkward to say, but you know that's you are the brand behind that. And, you know, it's, it's always weird kind of talking about those kind of things about, you know, monetization and content and brand when people are talking about the arts and, and themselves and things like that. But it's 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 kind of difficult balance. You, you don't want to completely lose yourself to those kind of things. But, you know, good marketing, good brand building, you know, that's what helps pay the bills ultimately. Yeah, and they're important skills to learn these days. I don't know that I've really got them. I mean, my skill is ultimately in thinking about theatre and putting some words on a page and making them sound all right. I'm not particularly au fait with how any of this kind of side of things works with marketing, with branding, with seeking sponsorship, with generating subscribes, with click rates and open rates and all these statistics. I don't really know how to navigate them or whether mine are good or not, but it's something I'm having to roughly get a handle on. But you're having to roughly get a handle on this kind of stuff at the same time that you're pitching it to other publications and doing the stuff that your kind of full-time job is as well. So it's a mirror. I mean, I'm almost just kind of small business owner in that yeah. respect as well. I mean, I'm a sole trader when it comes to HMRC, but I am kind of like a small business owner. And it's just an odd situation to be in, I suppose. You've got to wear a lot of different hats these days to be a freelance journalist. Yes, and I think you know, it's similar to to people in other other industries, whether it's you know musicians or you know, people within podcasts who try and you know make a living out of building their podcast or anything or any other kind of freelancer. Yes, you have to do all these different things that are nothing to do with the thing you're good at, the thing you enjoy doing, the thing that actually brings in the money. But yeah, you have to be you know, social media manager, marketing manager, brand manager, and all these kind of things. I mean, within that, I mean, how have you found the change in Twitter? I'm not going to say X in Twitter over the last. 12 months you know because but for journalism for journalism especially it's it was the thing yeah i mean i think the absence of verification is a massive uh, detractor from it now i mean the, the place is going down the toilet and you have to be very careful i mean my sister works in publishing and she's got like 20 or thousand followers on twitter and that's a massive part of her kind of professional life i think you have to be incredibly careful to tie so much significance to the number of followers on a site that is essentially run by a kind of egomaniac billionaire who could just make it awful with a few clicks of his mouse so i worry a lot about that it's certainly become a lot less it's certainly become a lot less kind of certain as a place to build your professional reputation one of the most annoying things for me is that elon musk has really taken against substack because Substack started a thing called Notes, which is a kind of sort of doing a Twitter kind of thing where you can post live, you can post content, you can post short messages on a, yeah. kind, of, on a kind of scrolling feed. 
And so he's kind of disabled all Substack links, and anyone that links to Substack, he limits the reach of the, their tweets, which is just incredibly annoying, <laughs> because that's one of the main ways that I drove people to, to subscribe to my newsletter, and consequently generate a source of income. So it's sort of mad that, that Elon fucking Musk can <laughs> can have an impact on, on my income purely. It's just, it sends me wild. Yes, yeah. It's crazy. I don't know if you heard of a site called Review, R-E-V-U-E, which was basically a bit like Substack, Beehive, all, all these kind of newsletter tools. And Twitter bought it maybe two or three years ago now. And so I, I used that as my kind of newsletter tool. And then he just kind of said, right, we're shutting it. You've got three months to kind of take your data away if you want to use it in someone else. But I think they sent maybe two emails and I saw some people saying, oh, I've gone into my review account and it's all gone because, you know, they, they'd taken a break and wanted to kind of do an email. Oh, it's all gone. All my data's gone. All my followers are lost and that kind of stuff. And yes, you know, it's it's shifting sands. And I think that's where having an email list of people you can contact is, is a great thing to have. Yeah, taking ownership over your own reach like that is very important, I think, because yeah, it's just mental that so much of your professional life and your professional kudos is tied up in the whims of tech billionaire. <laughs> absolutely is the majority of your stuff writing i know you mentioned podcasts i mean do you see much of a future in terms of producing stuff for whether it's the stage or other people in terms of short form interviews whether that's video audio podcasts that kind of thing i'd certainly like to do more talking i don't know (laughs) i got invited on radio 4 for the first time the other day and that was a bit of a thrill and it was quite well paid which was nice and my mum got to listen to me uh, on the radio. <laughs> and it's sometimes when you when you when something like that happens, people kind of finally understand what you do. If I try and explain my job to someone now, it's quite difficult to explain the various ways I make money. But when they say when you tell them, Oh, I was on Radio 4 the other day, or oh, I was published in the Financial Times the other day, that's something they kind of understand and yeah. they can get their head around. So I, I like that. I would like to do more of that. As for doing that kind of thing myself, I don't know. There's a guy I think his name's Mickey Joe, who does YouTube videos about theatre, reviewing theatre, and he seems he seems to be doing pretty well. I think he's given up his job now to do it. I don't I don't think I've got quite that level of exposing myself to a camera and to a microphone in me. I like doing this kind of thing every now and again when I've had time to think about it and digest. Yeah, I, I guess there's different kind of things where, you know, like you said, you you will maybe watch something, interview someone, and you'll soak it all up and then like you said you know produce a considered piece whereas that kind of thing is much more instant and you know there's there's room for both but they are different kind of skills and different ways of doing it yeah definitely and that's something i struggle with with the newsletter as well is that there is a pressure to produce content and i don't necessarily feel comfortable with that pressure because i don't always have something that i'm particularly bothered to write about but again that's kind of the way journalism is going especially this kind of what did you call it solopreneurial side of of freelance journalism is you have to embrace that pressure because it's all driven by algorithms and shit like that that i don't really understand and if you keep up the content then that's how you succeed and yeah i hate that to be honest i'm much more comfortable i'll be honest i'm much more comfortable writing for a publication and that publication publishing my stuff yeah but i wouldn't make enough money to pay the bills if i did that and how much onus is is there on you once you publish it whether it's the stage or anyone else to promote it through your channels is there any expectation from their side or is it, you know, you're published, you're done, don't worry about it? Not really. 
I don't think having a social media presence, I don't think the stage or the Scotsman is particularly bothered about that either way, or any publication I've written for, actually. That said, I don't know how much my having a social media presence and a newsletter and a Substack has had an impact on the other kind of jobs that come my way, like being a radio like this. How did you hear about me, for example? I'm trying to think. I don't know whether it was through stuff on the stage and then I saw that you were doing stuff and then I obviously subscribed to the Crush Bar, your your newsletter, and I thought, oh, well, I'll I'll drop you a line, you know, see if you're interested yeah, coming up because you know that was interesting that you know you're a you know you've got your kind of regular it comes journalism and then you've got your own stuff as well so so I thought that was interesting kind of angle of stuff yeah exactly and you do kind of spread yourself quite thin doing this kind of thing but it does mean quite a few people get to hear from you and then all sorts of interesting opportunities come your way as a result do you know the funniest thing I had no idea how they heard of me or even got hold of my contact details but I was contacted by a Dutch production company who make like those you know those film screenings where they've got a live orchestra playing the score at the same time as the okay, film yeah. is going on on a screen above the stage I don't know how they heard of me maybe it was through the newsletter and they said we write us a uh, a 200-word blurb that we can take to venues to, to sell this show to them. And I was like, sure, it was incredibly well paid. But God knows how they got hold of me. Also, I interviewed someone in the newsletter and then a German theatre company said, we really liked this interview you did with this particular playwright. I can't remember who it was now. I think it was the playwright, I think it was the playwright Nina Segal, and they were doing a German version of one of her plays and they wanted to syndicate my interview I did in the newsletter in the yeah. theatre programme. And that's a little bit of income that would never have come my way had I not done the kind of solopreneurial thing. Stuff like that comes around about once a month and it's a, it's a, it's a tidy little earner. Yeah, excellent. Can I, can, can I, I want to, in the interest of demystifying the, the job, because I want to, don't want to make it sound like, I, I just want to be clear about what I do. As for a long time, less so now, but for a long time, I coached cricket alongside yeah. theatre journalism. And I feel like that's important to say for some reason, because I didn't just survive off theatre journalism for a good five, six years or so. I do now, by and large, even though I still do coach cricket, but for a long time, I would be, if I wasn't in the theatre, I'd be on a playing field somewhere or at a primary school playground, chucking balls around and shouting at, at young children and trying to get them to play a forward defensive and earning a fair bit of money through doing that as well. Yeah. So for a long time, I was, I think I was the, the country's only theatre critic slash cricket coach. I think, I don't think, I don't think, Michael Billington was very into cricket. I don't know whether he ever coached there. Yeah. And in, in terms of the two, I mean, you know, if purely from a financial, was coaching cricket more lucrative than, than the journalism side? Good question. I got 20 quid an hour generally through coaching cricket, which is quite a good rate. And there is a, there is a lot there was a lot of cricket coaching work out there. But you are limited to the weather conditions uh, when you're coaching cricket. So it's not perhaps as reliable. Neither of them are particularly reliable fields to work in, to be honest. But together they make some kind of career. It's just actually one of the... It's a bit of a tangent. One of the people we had on was Julia Burden, who was up at the at the Fringe, and she had a podcast. And one of the people she spoke to was a guy who runs Sixes Cricket. I don't know if you've heard yeah. of them, because obviously there's a few. I don't know if there's any like north of Watford on them, where effectively it's it's a bar with a cricket machine, a bowling machine. Effectively, I don't know if you've seen them at all. Yeah, it's like a kind of batting cage come bar yes. situation, isn't it? People yeah, go on yeah. like stag do's and stuff. You can you can imagine, yeah, expanding out. Maybe maybe that's another route. 
kind of coach coaching drunk stag do's i could do it's always nice to have something to fall back on and i still do do it occasionally occasionally someone asks me to get involved with like a summer camp or gives me gives me a call and says oh i'm short of coaches can you come along and i like it it's nice it's Mm. being outside it's throwing balls around and I, i know all the content like the back of my hand i was never that good at playing cricket but i've i've coached all the I've coached in primary schools for so long doing it that I don't really need to prepare anything and I can rock up and someone can ask me, oh, would you do a fielding session? Would you do a bowling session? Would you do a batting session on this or that? And I'm comfortable. I know exactly how to do it and I know how to set it up. And I'm not intimidated by, you know, having 50 screaming kids running around the playing field. I can kind of control that. I've got a big, loud voice when I want to. So it's nice having something you don't really have to think about too much. That probably sounds bad. But then again, no cricket coaches that I work with are going to listen to this. So it's... It's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Well, no, you can you can do it without thinking. You're that good. There we are. That's the that's the positive spin on it. Thanks for listening. There's more details in the show notes about Fergus, his work, and the newsletter that we discussed in the episode. If you enjoyed this, check out our other episodes where we speak to a number of performers about their experiences at the Edinburgh Fringe, as well as creatives in other industries about making creativity pay.